Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Oh, and good morning, good morning Lisa. How it, are you? I am well. You're back. It's good to see yes. a face across the console. It is. Welcome to 2024. You've already done a session, I know, this year. But... Well, that was no, that was actually a pre-record. Oh. Um, that was Chelsea Roffey. Oh, okay. Uh, and that was an essay, actually. But I put that one in because that essay is actually now on the VCE English list. Nice. A uh, an open letter to Doubting Thomas, oh. which was all about her uh, time as an AFL goal umpire. Interesting. Interesting, to the point where even Julia Gillard made a point of going to the dressing rooms to see her before a grand final mm-hmm. uh, because of the influence she had and the role model uh, and, and the example she set Wonderful. For, for women in a predominantly male-oriented field. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But also then there were a couple of great little questions about there's banter that comes across the fence line mm-hmm. directed at male umpires, which is sexually oriented. Is that appropriate? But then when you get sexually oriented comments made to female umpires, is that a game changer? Because it's part of what took this place. This is a whole <laughs> massive can of worms of which we could spend the whole half hour discussing. But we're, but we're and- not going to do that, are we? <laughs> <laughs> um, today... Today you've got... I have uh, a writer and editor, Emma Goodall, to talk with me about the student anthology, What You Become. She is a contributor to the anthology along with 46 final year students from RMIT's Associate Degree of Professional Writing and Editing, of which I was also one a couple of years ago. So it's with great pleasure for me to introduce to you, Emma Goodall. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Lisa, letting me rep the uh, RMIT students. Great to be here. Oh, it's wonderful. It's great to have you. So tell me about the, the, this anthology. Um, tell me about the project involved and all the work involved in creating this anthology. Mm, it was a it was a big project straight off the bat. Um, typical book publishing is what six to nine months to get something out there, mm-hmm. and we condensed that into about twelve weeks. So goodness, yeah, huge. But um, we had thirteen editors um, and our final year writing students, and we all uh, pitched in to develop the book from start to finish so Mm -hmm. we picked the theme we edited the manuscripts we did the flat plan um liaised with all of the wonderful people that are involved in the book publishing process um and we produced what you become awesome and it's a fantastic anthology so i know that you wrote a short story in in the anthology it was actually a non-fiction piece wasn't it yes um there and did you have another sort of um part to your your role um, yes. So as part of the editing class, um, our class was split up into three streams, essentially. So we had our marketing stream, we had our production stream and our editorial. So I was lucky enough to sit on the editorial team um, with a wonderful group of editors. And we had a look at the details, I guess. <laughs> um, it was the style guide, um, answering all of those tricky questions that pop up when editors are editing the manuscript. You know, you don't think of something until... Um, 
a, an issue or a question is presented to you and those all, all came our way. Um, we problem solved, worked as a team to figure that out. Um, we chatted with Darren Holt, the cover designer, which mm-hmm. was wonderful. It's amazing, the cover, actually. Oh, it's beautiful. Absolutely phenomenal. He's done a stunning job. And to get an insight into that process itself and what actually goes into creating um, a book cover, it was a wonderful experience. Yeah. Um, Sounds like it was a massive learning curve. Absolutely. Yeah. It was. It was. But we're all all the better for it now. Um, and I don't think we could be more appreciative of our teacher, Michaela, mm-hmm. um, and all of the effort and learnings that she um, gave to us throughout the project. Awesome. Thank you. So I noticed that the theme was change. Um why did you decide on that as a theme? Mm, it's funny when we so we had a class brainstorm um, and we were all throwing ideas around the room and the first thing that came up actually was AI and mm. how that impacts um, the publishing industry and writers and editors um, and the change that's happening um, as a result of that and then I think we kind of ended up on this tangent of um, how we were feeling in a post-COVID world and Mm -hmm. what other big changes were happening in our lives Um, and whether that was, you know, feeling stuck in a moment or feeling like um, life was just racing us by. We're all at these different stages and all of us were drawn back to time and change and I think that was – it was something that we just couldn't let go of. We sat it down for a class, came back to it and we were like, no, this is it. This is what we're going to – yeah, it's a really great theme actually and it connects the stories in so in, in a really great way. It unifies everything. Um, so the introduction was written by Claire Coleman. Um, how did she come to be a part of this anthology? Uh, Claire, we were so lucky to have her as part of it. Um, again, as a class we sat down and we spoke about who was influential, um, who was going to... Um, read this collection and come to it with an open mind and um, an opinion that we really valued. And she was one of those people that we um, were lucky enough to, to reach out to and, and come back to us. And she very graciously agreed um, to have a look at our, our little anthology and hmm. write a piece about it. Yeah. She, she does a great job in the introduction. She writes, I quote, It often surprises me that it can be harder to write a quality short than something longer. It's the constraints that make our work more powerful. Would you agree with this? Absolutely. 100%. I think there's another gorgeous quote um, at the end of the introduction where she um, says, if we're lucky, things will explode. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, that's right. And I think that's such a beautiful way to put it because you do have all of these constraints and at the end of the day, pressure personally um makes my work better and I think she captured that essence Mm, yeah um so what do you think makes a good short story apart from having things sort of I guess you create a pressure around it and minimize the word count is there anything else for you that stands out to be to make a good short story do you think there's any rules that you've come across that is a great question I think as a writer and as an editor, you just need to know your subject. I think people place a lot of limitations on themselves and their writing, and that's really restrictive. And it's best to just let go and see what happens. Um, in terms of you know what creates a great short story, it's different for everybody. Mm. I think one person's going to get something out of you know a short nonfiction piece, and someone's going to get something else out of a poetry piece. Um, it 
is how the writer connects with it um, and how the reader is able to determine that meaning. Mm, oh, well, that's a great answer. So let's talk a little bit about your story, which is called Chaos of the Chrysalis. And you reflect on the nature of childhood in, um, in one paragraph in particular. Could you tell me a little about sort of the, where you got your idea from to write this? Mm, I think I'd just come back from an overseas trip actually. Um, and I personally struggle a little bit with mental health and anxiety. And it was something that I noticed that from my childhood to now the world around me had changed and um, I was working in environments that I never actually saw myself being a part of Mm. Um, and I'd managed to overcome a lot of the challenges that I'd faced in childhood but they were always still in the back of my mind they were Mm. always still kind of there and I think um, with the shoelaces analogy that I kind of tied to there I think it's we put things in a little box we put them in a little cupboard um, and even if we are able to overcome those challenges, I think they're always still present and they shape who we are. And that's Mm. something I wanted to touch on. Well, you've made the perfect segue into a little bit of, um, perhaps would you mind reading a paragraph or two from your story? Um, That would be awesome. Absolutely. Happy to. It's interesting what things we remember from childhood. When a thought was a thought, an action, an action, and the subtle disconnects between the two didn't mean all that much. It's only when you get older, when the disconnects are bigger, more frequent, that you start to understand the real meaning behind a moment. Now, in my 20s, I still wear white runners, but they have laces like butterflies and give absolutely nothing in the way of arch support. They're the far less cool footwear of the corporate casual scene I belong to now, which in truth is not a scene I ever thought I'd find myself walking through. You see, I may have learned to tie my laces, but I never quite tied the threads of thought and action into a neat little bow. I made a knot instead and frayed the ends each different solution to the same scenario, a multitude of answers to the one question and a series of possibilities that will likely never come to pass. Thank you so much, Emma. Um, That was amazing. That was really lovely. Thank you. I can see how it directly relates to the theme as well. Um, So some of the other stories in the anthology, there's there's quite a, a range of different stuff, isn't there? Um, there's, you know, subject matters are the body, the personality, even climate change. Can you tell me what was one of your favourite kind of stories in amongst them, apart from your own, of course? Mm. (laughs) Oh, gosh, it's hard to pick a favourite. Chromatic Aberration by Rowan. Um, He was actually on our editorial team. He is a phenomenal editor and writer. And I think the way that he was able to... um, turn that TV static into imagery and relate that to the story of the whales and and watching and um, how that, how perspectives shift. I think it was such a unique way to delve into that topic. Mm. Um, And as I said, his writing is just absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. Um, Okay. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So um, now that you've finished the course Mm -hmm. and you've got this anthology out where, where can we find the anthology, first of all? Whereabouts can we, can we buy it? All Readings bookstores. Pop down to your local readings and uh, pick it up there. We do also have an ebook available, so you can pick that, that one up wherever you get your ebooks from. Awesome. Thank you so much. And before you go, what, what have you got sort of in the pipeline now? Are you writing something else or are you um, 
what is your plans in terms of your writing and editing pursuits from now? Mm, always writing. Um, if you've read my bio, though, at the bottom of the book, I'm not likely to, to share. <laughs> <laughs> um, much prefer sitting in the background um, as an editor. I currently work in the travel space and work a lot with stories there. And I think travelers are really... Um, powerful vehicle for storytelling just like books are so I love where love where I am at Mm. um, and continuing to I guess edit in that space is absolutely perhaps travel writing is something that might come back potentially Mm. we'll see yeah well thank you so much Emma Goodall for for coming in today and chatting with me about the anthology Um, what what we become or what you become sorry Um, it's been a complete pleasure thank you Thank you so much for having me. Can I just ask a question of Emma? What will become become of those authors that have contributed? Because there are quite a number there and the different fields of writing they get into. That's a phenomenal question. We still have people studying. We have people, I know um, one of our editors is actually off in Germany in an internship at the moment. We're we're everywhere. (laughs) Our MIT PWE students, you'll find us everywhere. And will we be replaced by AI? Don't answer that one. (laughs) That's a terrible Uh, I I think perhaps not writers. That's what I tend to say and feel instinctively, that no one can really tell a story like an actual human being. Yeah, and get that feel. You notice Mm. it with with AI, what it produces. It doesn't have that sort of um, passion or it's a human element. The, in, the liveness. In, it's clinical, yeah. 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 And, and the originality is probably not there either. I, I wonder how much – do we have time to ask this quick question? Quick, quick, quick. Um, editing may have changed through AI. Is there conversation about how much sort of an editor has, you know, how much work there is for editors now or is it now more AI, would you say, Emma, just having been on the course? Is there a conversation about that or not? There is. I do think that the conversation is majority looked at from a writing perspective, not so much an editing perspective. Mm -hmm. But even in my current role, um, you definitely have to put more work into editing a piece now when you get something that comes through from AI. So I think it'll be a really interesting development um, in the next few years as to how that's handled. Mm. Interesting. Well, I'm going on to my interview, but I haven't got an author here. I did a pre-record, but um, you might have heard the name before, Brian Brown. Oh! A murdered boy, a missing backpacker, prostitution and drugs. And all this takes place in a small New South Wales coastal town in Brian Brown's thriller, The Drowning. So, Brian, welcome to 3CR. Hey, thanks, Dave. Good to be here. Now, look, I found the opening to this tale upsetting. You introduce us to David. You give us his hopes and ambitions, a young boy. He's Indigenous. We get invested in his story and you kill him off. What are you doing to us? Well, it just seemed the right thing to do, that's all. But the standard is, to, you know, a body's found and then the investigation starts. But here we get a character that we, as a reader, admire, learn to think about, invest in, thinking, what's his future? And then you take it away. Well, you're right. Maybe I shouldn't have done that. Anyway, the, the truth of the matter is, in that opening of three or four pages, we get to meet three characters, David being one of them, and a young woman and another bloke, the fella. And in a very arresting situation. And then that gives me three really interesting characters to now start to explore. What was David's life? Who is the fella? 
and what's going to become of Layla. And in, in having those three characters, having arrested the audience with those three characters, now they're probably going to stay with me to go, well, who are they and what the hell's going on? But this is what we're doing with David. We're thinking, what's going to happen to him? But he then becomes the victim of the drowning. It's the fella that's bumped him off. And why? Why has the fella done that? Can you give that away in the opening? He saw something he shouldn't have seen. Yeah. Now, the fella is an interesting character. And I'm wondering if we should have any, I don't know if sympathy is the right word for him, because he's built a bunker under the house, in the, in the houses in the, in the back blocks. And here he is. The bunker was finished. He ran his hands along the walls and smiled up at the ceiling. Then he walked to the middle of the room, sat on the floor and cried. The cry became a howl. It, be it came from deep within him, from some terrible place that had the control. It always had the control. His background has led him, and his upbringing, has led him to behave the way he behaves, the way he thinks. And there are some other intriguing things he does as well. So he's basically abducted somebody. But what does he do? We can't give it completely away. He doesn't necessarily do what we expect he's going to do. So you've changed the sort of uh, expectation, the assumptions of the reader. And there are some other interesting things that the fella does. His mum's taken him to an art gallery at one stage. It seems as if he's... He took his mum to an art gallery. Ah. He took his mum to an art gallery when the old man was no longer around. That was something he was able to do that he could do with his mother. And he's touched... And she'd mentioned once about, uh, about wanting to go to an art gallery. And he's touched by that moment. So he's got feelings. You've mm. also then got him having a GT Monaro. Mm. But what does he do with it? What can you tell us about how he treats the Monaro? Well, the, the GT Monaro... Is a, was been a big thing in his whole life with the old man and the family. In a way, the GT Monaro gave that family nice times. There were moments of very nice times so that he remembers. So when he has the Monaro himself and he has companionship there in cert, with a certain person, then he's able to also give them nice times but it's not exactly how you think the nice times are. Well, the suggestion is they go for a drive to the beach, but, yeah, well, what really happens? And heaven help you if you throw up in the back seat. It's old man. So yeah. the best of times, the worst of times yeah. in, in many regards. Yeah. But also then, at the end of the He novel, didn't come from a... He came from a very difficult life, early life. Should we, as the reader, then, have any sympathy for him because of that i mean that's a very good question but like yes yes maybe for those things that he went through not necessarily for the things that he's doing um, and also then at the very end he's still delusional he still lives in his own mind's eye well i think that's the thing about i mean the, the enjoyment for me with all these characters is getting into their mind you know like because we live in our mind a hell of a lot of the time. You know, should I go there? Will I do that? I wonder if uh, my mate's coming there. Oh, look at that picture. I like that. Oh, um, why is that person looking at me? Paranoia. All the things can go through our mind. Our minds are a, 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 are a place that can give us great enjoyment or they can completely screw us up. And dealing with people who um, 
enjoy their mind but then struggle with certain things or then people perhaps like the fella where the mind has gone into a very, very, very strange or dark place that's in control of this man. Um, that, that's interesting to me. You've also got quite an array of characters and we haven't got time to go into them all, but in some instances you set them up only to change our assumptions about them later. I mean, Ryan is a character from, uh, he studied at the Sorbonne in France, medicine, and then later, several chapters later, you sort of change the perception on him. Uh, there are others. Adrian um, looks like a, a knockabout bloke. You change the perception on him as well. So you're sort of setting up the reader at time. Well, I think, I think I'm introducing the reader to these characters. And then I'm going to take you into their life, let you know exactly who that person is through whatever means. But um, I think, I mean, the great, the great thing for me is like finding these characters, introducing the audience or myself to these characters and then going, who the hell are they? How do they get to be here at this time? What is their journey of life? Because, you know, it's bloody, we all have a journey. Everyone has a journey. And they're always, you know, like, there's no such thing as a small journey. Some seem to be heightened and all that. But if you go on a journey, you've got love, you've got, you've got disillusionment, you've got joy, you've got, you know, all the things are in there. All the things are in there. In fact, that journey includes that background because you actually then touch on a lot of what's happening in Australia at the moment. Stolen generation, education, family abuse and violence, a little bit of trading in marijuana on the side and things like that. It's all there. Rental and problems. And it's all taking place in this little coastal town close to Byron Bay. It seems to be very close it's, to home. It's actually four hours south of Byron Bay. <laughs> oh, I shouldn't even say, because those people are now be at me going, oh, so you've, told, you've written about us, have you? I'm in all sorts of strife. You don't live close uh, to Byron Bay there, do you, Brian? But it, it makes for an intriguing I mean, there, lifestyle. We do go to Byron Bay at one yeah. stage there, for sure, and then we move down the coast. And all of these people helping each other out, doing um, a bit of trading on the side, living a, a very uh, interesting lifestyle. Uh, David, the thing that, that I, I've come to realise is that obviously I enjoy community. You know, I enjoy my background of growing up in the suburbs of Sydney until I was 25, until I went off to England to, to bullshit everyone. I was an actor. And, um, you know, like, and, and community really, and, and these small country towns are, all, do have, are very much community oriented. You know, you sort of, particularly we've noticed in things like the fires and the floods, how people have to band together. They need each other. So I, I enjoy the opportunity of creating a, a community and letting you know who all these people are in the community. But it must have taken quite a bit of effort to keep them all in mind and all taking place simultaneously. I wish I could say that, but it actually was bloody easy. Really? I just, obviously, I, I let them live and yeah. let them guide me to where they were going to go. Yeah. Because what we haven't touched on yet are the bikies and the trade in prostitution that's going on. So there's a whole wealth of things going on in the background as mm. well with these characters. But here's the other thing. The narrator here, uh, fairly easygoing. There was a bloody lot of people at the funeral. It was held on the island in the middle of the river, about two kilometres from the mouth that pours into the ocean. It had history, the island. History as an Aboriginal reserve. Many of Moira's generation had lived on the island until the early 50s when the island was leased off and the reserve moved. Moira looked out at the crowd, about 200 people, surprised her. Didn't realise her little David had touched so many lives. A lot of whiteies too. 
it's casual. It's uh, to the point. It's almost like sketching in many ways. Did it come naturally? Where did you get the voice from? I guess it's my voice. I don't know. I mean, like, you know, like I've spent 50 years telling stories on screen and television and that and working with writers because I also produce and all that. You know, so I've worked with writers and worked on story and how important to keep a story moving and all that. When I started putting them down, like with the first book, I had seven short stories called Sweet Jimmy on crime there. I don't know. I latch on to uh, a character. And then I sort of go, where are you going to take me, mate? And, um, and, and, and it's, it feels very natural. I hardly ever go back and change anything. I mean, there's no second drafts or third drafts or fourth drafts. This is basically the first draft with a couple of, you know, sometimes I go, Brian, you can't swear that much in a book. Get some of that out of there. Or, um, uh, you know, I might just rephrase something. But basically what's coming out stays there. Because that was one of the interesting questions I had in the back of my mind in terms of the influence uh, of being an actor, being in that profession and how that would have influenced, you know, generating a character. But we normally, as a third person narrator, they're often distant and removed. This narrator is on top of it all uh, and very immediate. Uh, and we do get these character sketches, therefore, coming out, which is fantastic. Yeah. We're going to have to round it up uh, shortly, but the resolution to this story, there's no one big uh, discovery. We do find out who killed, well, we knew from the beginning who killed David, but how this gets resolved. But it's no one major discovery. It's all these little elements. And it comes back to these characters in the story who've been hiding an affair. So they were out in the van. They've seen something in passing. It's all indirect. But when it's brought together, so you've got the sergeant having a bit of a, um, just a nag. A nag. Something's not right. Right. So he follows through. We've got Ryan, who had met Layla as a backpacker, sort of prompting things. We've got people who've seen things, but they didn't think it was important. But all of a sudden it comes together, coalesces, and we get a resolution. Not a discovery, but a sort of resolution then to how this all happened. And and we get the big thing that we want to have happen about Layla. Yes. You know. So what has happened to the missing backpacker? Yeah. We find out about the fella and why he did what he did. We haven't mentioned the bikies and the, the prostitution ring in the background. That's LinkedIn. It's all got to do with doing a bit of work on the side, being paid cash in hand from a character we thought was somebody else. Uh, so it's all there. And it's all in Brian Brown's novel, The Drowning. And it's an Alan and Unwin release. So, Brian, thank you very much for talking with me Thanks, today. It's been very nice to be in here and listen to you talking about my book. Yes, I think I did a bit too much talking on that one when I interviewed him. Oh, no, not at all. It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Having a bit of fun. But, yes, now we were talking about editing before and AI and editing. I mean, what's going to happen in the world? I mean, what would they do to Brian Brown's book? (laughs) I think essentially no one really knows what's going to happen, do we? But I do feel that the laws have to change around um, copyright and... And, and and that sort of thing. Well, that's and, the, and, and perhaps around, you know, who gets paid for what. That's the originality mm. question. Can AI come up with anything truly original? I mean, what do you think, Emma? The real answer? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think so. I think um, there's nothing like a reader to determine meaning from something, and I don't think AI can replicate that. 
Yeah. Great it's, point. Whether a reader, I mean, a, a reader can identify with a writer, but can a reader identify with AI and get the essence and the feeling mm. that is conveyed? Who knows? I think, mm. yeah, we just need to find a more productive space for the AI. Like, you know, when we're in trouble and we need an ambulance, then that's when AI can come in. But when we're writing like a really great novel, then AI can. can but go will away. AI then be determining what makes a great novel? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I guess we, you know, th- where there's money, where there's commerce, we, you know, there's going to be that mixture of um, um, art and the, and commerce, you know. You know and they can replicate our voices. So we won't be needed here, Lisa, when we interview somebody. Know, maybe this is not a real radio show. Maybe we're not real people or real voices. I mean, this, we're getting into an existential crisis <laughs> at the moment. But in fact, there will be actual people here, live, not AI, not artificial people, uh, here next week, just as there are where real people uh, this week. Mm-hmm. So we're back live on air. Fantastic. Pub- See you next week. Indeed, we will. So that takes us out for another week. All the best. I'm going to try and put it in automatic now, Lisa. Um Going, t- talking about artificial intelligence. The artificial <laughs> intelligence is now going to run this machine. Here we go. See what happens. <laughs>